Everybody should turn in their Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 as we continue on in this very interesting passage of text. Before I, I begin, I would like to spend a few moments in prayer asking the Lord to guide us, to open our hearts, to guide my lips, and to um, open our hearts by His Spirit. Would you join me in prayer? Our holy God, you are the one who, for whom there is no beginning and no end. The ancient of days. The creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The beginning and the end. The author and perfecter of our faith. It is to you, Lord, that we bow the knee and humble ourselves before you. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. You have made yourself known to us through the pages of Scripture that we are not at a loss for who you are. We do not grope in darkness wondering how we might find or reach the God who made us, for you have clearly revealed yourself to us. And so we come before you, Lord God, and we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears, illuminate our minds, that we might understand what you have given to us not just so that we would have an academic understanding of who you are, Lord God, but that we might know you, that we might love you more, that we might desire you above all things. When we see you as you truly are, you become the most glorious and the most valuable and the most sought after object in the whole universe. And I pray, Father God, that that would be so, that you would be the most desirous thing in our lives. And so, Father God, open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and open our minds, not so that, not simply to gain information, but to love you more. Guide my words, I pray, Father God, that they may be true words. And I pray, gracious Lord, that you would grant us favor. And that when we walk out of this place, we will walk out rejoicing in the Lord and declaring the truth of God Almighty. So grant us favor this day. Grant us favor by being present with us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And empower us, Lord God, to see your truths. These things we ask for, the, for Christ's sake, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Some have stated that Daniel chapter 7 is perhaps the most important 
and significant part of the book of Daniel. And certainly if we were to measure the book of Daniel by how much by how much has been written on various aspects or various parts of it, certainly Daniel 7 would come across as the most significant aspect of this book because so much has been written on Daniel chapter 7. It is perhaps one of the most glorious passages in in all of the Bible. It is also one of the more difficult passages to understand. I'm not saying that we cannot understand it. I'm just saying that we ought to approach it with humility and seeking God's gracious spirit uh, to enable us to see what's going on in this uh, spectacular book that God has given to us. Let me just give you a little bit of a background, make sure everybody's caught up just in case you weren't here last week or in case perhaps maybe you have forgotten. If you were like me, sometimes I forget things from one week to the next or from one day to the next or even in regards to my glasses where I just set them down. You'll recall that Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is rather distinct is rather distinct. It's, it's different from the first six chapters. Daniel it can easily be divided into two major mm, parts, I guess. So da- Daniel 1 through 6 is really simple. It's, I love teaching through Daniel chapter 1 through 6 because it's what we would call a historic narrative, and it's really simple. You know, something happened, so let's just say uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, goes in, he attacks Jerusalem, takes a bunch of people captive, including Daniel and his friends, and they come back and they're living in exile in, in Babylon, and then some sort of crisis arises for Daniel or one of his friends. Perhaps it's uh, uh, not compromising their faith in God, and it demonstrates then how these individuals lived faithfully for God in this pagan society. And it's really pretty straightforward. Not much, not too many difficulties. However, when we get into Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we leave behind the historic narrative and we get into what we might call prophetic visions. These are all dreams and visions. And dreams and visions... Well, you know, they don't always make as much sense as just a nice narrative story. And so dreams and visions are filled with symbols and filled with pictures and filled with um, metaphors that sometimes we need to spend a little bit of time uh, working our way through to grasp what is going on. And so we move from historic narrative into prophetic vision. We move from the realm of the physical to the realm of the spiritual. And one of the things we've tried to put forth is that when we see Daniel chapter 7 through 12, it is a it is a genre of literature that is known as apocalyptic. And of course, the book of Revelation may be the most uh, famous uh, biblical book that is uh, categorized as apocalyptic, but Daniel certainly sets the standard. Daniel is one of the first uh, apocalyptic um, uh, books that we see in the Bible. And apocalyptic was just a genre of writing that was well known in the uh, 2nd century, 1st, 2nd century B.C., all the way through maybe the 1st century A.D. And it was a a well-known method of writing. And so, 
But the way I've described apocalyptic is what we're doing is we are seeing things the way God sees them. In fact, that's what we're going to do today. We are going to look at things from a heavenly perspective. We are going to see the world as God sees them. And this is important for us to understand. Our need for this particular passage of text Our need as a 20th century church, you might wonder, well, why do I need to understand a whole bunch of prophetic visions from the from, you know, from twenty five hundred years ago? Is that really important to me? Well, our need for it is that you and I live in in a particular culture, in a realm, and we need to have an expanded vision of current events. And if we do, I think we'll adjust the way we live and and all sorts of things are going on. Of course, this is kind of the the political silly season right now and all sorts of, you know, we're getting ready to to elect a new president. And we might think, oh, my goodness, if so and so becomes president, our world is doomed, doomed, I say. And so but then your your brother or sister or another family member says, no, 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 your guy, if your guy or gal gets elected, then we're doomed. Doomed, I say. And so we wonder, you know, and, and then we see all sorts of nut job leaders across the globe doing, you never know when they're going to do something cataclysmic. We need a broader view, though. We need to see things as God sees them. Fortunately, God has given us a vision or a view of how he sees, how he sees things. Because when we begin to see things as God sees, that, sees them, I propose we will adjust how we live. I believe that our priorities will begin to be reshaped. So we want to consider our world events through a heavenly lens. Because after all, folks, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers and rulers in high places. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual. And when we begin to see things that are so absurd, this should alert us not to that our world is going to, you know, heck in a handbasket. But there is a severe spiritual delusion. Let me give you an example. When I see a young girl, maybe 15, 16 years old, and I've seen a couple of these accounts in the news, a high school girl deciding that it is a good idea to join ISIS. Now understand this. There is no cover-up. There is no... uh, Delusion, there is no deception here. Once she does, she will be married off and raped and beaten. Now, when somebody says, I think that, when, when a young girl who's, say, in a middle or middle, upper middle class home says, yeah, I think that's a good idea, that's a spiritual battle. There's only one thing that accounts for that, and that is that there is a spiritual working behind this. I just bring that up. And so, so folks, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual forces in high places. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but they are spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. This is what Daniel wants us to understand. That there is a sovereign God. There is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. And that there is a God in heaven who sees all that is going on. He permits what he permits. But there will come a day when the God in heaven will say enough. And I am done. And I am going to roll up this, the sky like a scroll. And I am going to bring about my complete and utter salvation. It is done. And so apocalyptic literature, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the images and the metaphors and, the, and all of the, uh, the, the really graphic pictures that go along with it uh, that, that we forget that apocalyptic literature was written to give people hope. So when the early believers read this, they were hopeful. They were encouraged. They saw that my world is not falling apart. That God still is on his throne and God is still reigning and powerful and almighty. And he has not abandoned us. That we are still part of his purposes. And so I hope by the end of today that when you walk out of here, I may not have defined all of the images for you. I may not have explained all of the um, details of the pictures that are presented to us, but I do pray that you will walk out of here with hope and encourage that God has not been dethroned and that his Christ has redeemed us and has loved us. If we do that, I think we're in good shape. So that's why we need apocalyptic literature. This is why we need Daniel chapter 7. And so with that, let's go ahead and I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to begin actually with, uh, we're only going to be talking about verses 9 through the rest of the chapter, but I think I would like to uh, begin with verse 8. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 through the end of the chapter. While I was con... I'm going to go to 7. All right. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was was like white snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful. With its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which the three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue the three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in time and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time times and half a time, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the holy inspired word of God. Well, let's begin here and just realize how this, I want to pick up with verse nine, but verses seven and eight are, are a good transition point for us to remind ourselves how that particular part of the vision ended. It ended with this horn coming out of this beast and it was full of eyes and it was making Great boasts. It was a boast-making, arrogant boast. And so we, we need to make sure that, certain that we understand that our current section, verse nine, beginning with verse 9, begins. Uh, it begins with the awesome scene of the Ancient of Days taking his seat on the throne. In the background is this arrogant horn making great boasts. That makes sense? Do we need to wake up? I'll just, you know, I can keep repeating and just go on. I can give you more explanation. I got time. I don't got anything going on this afternoon. And I got lunch in the back, so. So it concludes with this arrogant boasting, and then our current section begins with the Ancient of Days being 
seated upon his throne. So let's talk a little bit about this this figure, the Ancient of Days. I began looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And so we see this new vision. And this is a heavenly vision. It appears to me that Daniel now is looking and he gets a glimpse of heaven, much like we see John in the book of Revelation enter in to the very throne room, into the very presence where God rules and reigns. And many thrones are set up. And we could say something about that. We see a little bit of explanation in the book of Revelation about those many thrones. But Daniel's not concerned about the many thrones. He's only concerned about one throne and one figure who sits upon that one throne. And so while many thrones are being set up, Daniel is transfixed by the Ancient of Days who sits on one particular throne. And notice how this individual is described. He is called the Ancient of Days. We could probably speak much about this this title. But I think under the understanding of Ancient of Days, we see God as being ever-present. We see God as being eternal. And this is interesting because we contrast this with the earthly kingdoms that we saw in verses 1 through 8. And notice the earthly kingdoms, they come and go. I saw four beasts, and we'll see that these are four kingdoms, and they kept coming up out of the sea. They kept coming up out of this uh, tumultuous uh, place of human wickedness, and they kept coming. And so we see the transitory, temporary nature of earth kings, but God, who sits on his throne, is forever and ever. And he has no beginning and he has no end. We see this in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. I think I have that passage. I have a couple of scriptures. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then we see Also, in, I believe, Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27, of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. It is an established truth of Scripture that God is the eternal God who has no beginning and no end. He sees the end from the beginning and He institutes all the means to bring about all of His good purposes. He is unshakable and He can never be removed from His place. Earth kings arise and they fall. Earth kings come and go, but God Almighty sits on His throne and He is there forever and ever and ever. This is our first glimpse into the heavenly realm. We need to see things as God sees them. We need to see things. We need to understand who God is. Because our lives are transitory. Our circumstances are transitory. But God is the same forever and ever. But God is not only the eternal God. We see that his vesture is white like snow and the hair of his head is like pure wool. And certainly this has to do with the purity and the wisdom of this individual who is called the Ancient of Days. That is, he is worthy of all honor. And he is utterly and completely righteous. Earth kingdoms are wicked. Even earth kingdoms that start off good. 
They may start off benevolent and wonderful, but eventually, because of the fallen nature of man and the wickedness of his heart, eventually earth kingdoms will deteriorate and become and show forth their wickedness. But God, the Ancient of Days, is utterly righteous. He is utterly pure. And all of His decisions are right. You and I need to understand that we need to bow before the decisions and the judgments of the Almighty God. So oftentimes we say, well, I don't think God is fair. And I hear people say, well, I think if God were fair, if God were this, and He would do things that way. Need I bring up Paul? Who are you as the clay to pass judgment on the potter? Who are you as sinful individuals to start to tell God as the holy and righteous eternal one how he ought to rule in his world? Governments are wicked, but the ancient of days is utterly and completely righteous. And I love this. The ancient of days took his seat. He reigns on this chariot engulfed in flames. And while the arrogant boasting of men is in the background, God is utterly unmoved and undeterred, and he is certainly not in any panic. He just sits down. Men are running to and fro, and this boastful horn is speaking arrogant things, and God is not shaken. He takes his seat on a flaming chariot throne. Our God is an all-consuming fire. And we see in Deuteronomy um, chapter 4, 24. Did I bring that? Yep. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. People have problems with God being jealous. And I'll explain that some other time. But you shouldn't. But here our point is, is that God is a consuming fire. And we see this then throughout the scriptures that our God... Did I bring up any other scriptures? I think I have another one. Here we go. Second Thessalonians 1, 6-8. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we have a boastful, arrogant kingdom making arrogant, boastful words. But God is a consuming fire. And you can see this is not going to end well. His vesture was white like snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him. Myriads upon myriads standing before him. I love this. The court sat and the books were opened. Folks, this is a courtroom scene and court is in session. It is time for court to begin. All rise. And the judge sits. And millions, myriads upon myriads attend to him. And books are opened. This is judgment day. 
God is not only in control, but God is the judge of the living and the dead. And the books that are open, generally when we see books in, uh, spoken of in this way in the Bible, it's, it, it speaks of um, God's memory of deeds that are done. The words that are spoken, motives and intents of the heart. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see this, but we see this especially um, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. We see a picture of this. It says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And then, of course, we see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, we see this picture. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. It appears that there are at least two great books, the book of deeds and the book of life. And we will be judged from one or the other. In this case, books are opened. The book of life and the book of deeds. The Lamb's book of life comes from those who repent and turn to Jesus Christ and call upon Him as Lord and Savior and you will be transferred from death into life and you will never ever taste death. Or you can say, I would just as soon be judged by my good works. And many people, how many of you have friends say, you know what, I think I'll just trust the Lord. I'll just go ahead and ask, you know what, I think I'm a pretty good person. And I'm going to trust that my good works and my good deeds are going to be seen as sufficient in God's sight to earn his favor. This is a foolish place to be because God tells us that even your greatest deeds are as filthy rags. They are vile and they stink to high heaven. And besides that, even if you do do some good deeds, you have violated God's command. Somewhere along the way, you have violated one of God's commands. And if you violated one command, you have violated them all. This would be maybe akin to somebody saying, being a nice person... Just kind of overlook the fact that, that I murdered my family. But I'm a nice guy, and I've done a lot of nice things since I murdered my family. I'm still a murderer. So here's the thing. You can stand before God and make your plea based on the good things that you have done. And I will tell you this. All of us have fallen short. There is none righteous, no, not even one. Every single one of us has fallen short. Do not think for a moment that your good deeds are good enough to merit God's favor and pleasure. There is only one who merited God's favor and pleasure, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. And those who are in Christ will be given life, and those who are outside of Christ will be judged. So where are you? Books will be opened. Which book is your name written in? And so the court is in session. The, book, the books are opened. And I kept looking. I love this. I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words. So while all of this 
glorious heavenly scene is going on. Kind of in the background, there's this, these boastful, arrogant words going on. Here's the glorious picture of God in heaven and some puny little king shouting out boastful things and then um, it's over. I kept looking until the beast was slain. That's it! And his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. This, uh, of course, we see a parallel to this in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. We read, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and his army. And so we see the earth kings uh, gathered together to make war on Christ. Ooh, here's a big battle. You ready for it? And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. That's it. It's over and it's done. This is what we see in the book of Daniel. This arrogant horn making boastful words. Blah, 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 blah. Boom, it's over. I almost showed, you can go home and look this up on your computer, but I almost put, there's a, there's a great video, um, a great, great short film from 1969. Um, it's in black and white. It has been revised. There is a part two uh, now. It has been revised in color. But if you have never seen um, Bambi versus Godzilla, um, it, it is a great visual for this. So I won't give it away. It's a short film, probably lasts about a minute and a half, but from 1969 and it's still you'll even if you've seen it a thousand times, you'll still crack up. But that's this. All right, it's over. It's done. There's nothing. But then we get this other individual that we see. I kept looking in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the nations and the people and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is who is this son of man? And I'll tell you, there are articles and books and journals written about who is the Son of Man? To me, it is very, very simple. This is clearly a divine figure. We look over in Psalm 104, verses 3 and 4, and we read, He lays the beams, speaking of Yahweh, He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Notice that. He makes the clouds His chariot. We see then, In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, we see the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. And so we see the Lord riding on the clouds. This is clearly a divine figure, but perhaps the New Testament and more specifically Jesus Christ himself is our best commentary regarding who this particular individual is. And we read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 64, we read 
how Jesus understands this individual. The Pharisees asked him at his trial, are you the son of God? And this is what he says. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus himself identified himself as this individual and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. You can contrast that then also or cross-reference that or confer with Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. So Jesus tells us who this Son of Man is. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who comes on the clouds of glory. I'm the one who receives the kingdom. I'm the one who has dominion, power, and authority over all. That is me. And by the way, he says that I will come and I will judge you. I will be your judge. It's interesting that he is called a Son of Man. He is contrasted with these uh, grotesque... um, animal figures, these human kings who are pictured as grotesque animals. But Jesus is presented as the Son of Man, man being God's highest creation. These other things are subhuman, but Jesus is the perfection of humankind. And we see that he is given a kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. It is one of glory. It is a glorious kingdom. It is one where all nations, all tribes, all tongues will come and bow before the Son of Man who rides on the clouds of glory. And certainly then we see this portrayed perfectly in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says this. And Jesus came up to his disciples just before what we call the Great Commission. He says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have all authority We also then read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, which writes this. We pick up in the middle of the sentence, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then, just in case that's not enough, we read in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. We read, And he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has been given all authority and a glory and a dominion and power that every nation, tribe, and tongue will worship him to the glory of the Father. Are you worshiping him? See, because if you are, you will bow before him. I adjure you now, bow before God. If not, you're in that other boat, the Bambi versus Godzilla side of things. You don't want to be there. You are on the boastful, arrogant side of things, and it ends badly. But those who align themselves with Christ, they will 
We'll get into this in just a little bit. They will reign with Christ who has all authority, power, and dominion. So I want us to note just by a quick summary here then of these two figures. We have this interesting contrast between the earthly, this earthly and heavenly conflict, but we have a clear vision that God Almighty is ruler of all. He sits on the throne. He brings history to its certain conclusion with his Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, apocalyptic literature should give you hope. It should give you encouragement. It should cause us to say things are not spinning out of control. Things are exactly as they ought to be because my God sits on his throne and nobody dethrones him. This is what apocalyptic literature does. It gets us and sees things as as heaven sees them. It gives us a heavenly view of things. We need a heavenly view of things when life seems to be spinning out of control. But then we get into this very interesting part of Daniel chapter 7 and that's an interpretation of the vision of the four beasts. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here Though we could. These four beasts, we of course learned, are four kingdoms. They are four earthly kingdoms, one coming after another. But Daniel is not so interested in the first three beasts. He's really interested in the fourth beast. That's the one that gets his attention. And I put up a number of artists' renderings of the various ways that people have understood this fourth beast. And because uh, he's the most terrifying and he is the most horrifying, and he's the one who Daniel says, I'd like to know a little bit more about him. We don't really get any real description other than that he has uh, claws of, of iron and he has you know, teeth of, of bronze and, and that he crushes and he stamps out all the other kingdoms. This is the one that Daniel is most concerned about. And out of this beast that Daniel sees, ten horns come up. Ten horns generally would be some sort of kingdom or a king. Um, And then three are ripped up and another small horn comes up. Well, there are numerous ways of looking at who the ten horns are and how three get ripped up. As a student of Scripture, and really that's what I, I'm, I'm a student of the Bible. I'm certainly no, I don't have everything in this book figured out. As a student of Scripture, I still wrestle with these ten horns and the three that are torn up. But here's what I know. It appears that there is turmoil in this, in this kingdom it seems that though, as though this is a final powerful king or kingdom. We notice this, that he persecutes the saints. That he wears them out. That he is able to change times and law. Literally change times and worship. Creates, perhaps creates new calendars and makes new laws. Makes new means of, of worship. He is boastful and arrogant and he defies God. But notice this, his reign is temporary. He reigns for time, times, and half a time. His reign comes to an end. Notice this in contrast with the Ancient of Days who reigns forever and ever and whose kingdom has no end. And we will see in verse 26, I think we get a a quick glimpse then of verses 
9 through 11, kind of a referring back in verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment. There it is. The court is sitting and dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. In other words, this beast, this arrogant, boastful beast who persecutes the the people of God puts to death the people of God who reigns as though he is God and makes boastful, arrogant claims will do so for the allotted time that God allots him and then it is over. And then what happens? The saints are given a kingdom and dominion. Now you're probably thinking, wait a second, doesn't the Son of Man get the glory and the power and the dominion? How is it then later on that the saints get the power and the glory and the dominion? How how does that work out? Do they split it? No. Those who are united with Christ will rule and reign with Christ. Christ is given power and dominion and glory. And if you are in Christ, you are his child. You are his You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are united with Christ and you will rule and reign with the one who has dominion and power and glory forever and ever. And so to me, the um, image here is abundantly clear. It is very black and white. There are those who align themselves with this horn who is boastful and proud and it is over. And there are those who align themselves with the son of man coming in power and glory and they will reign with that one. But note this, those who reign with the one, the Son of God, Son of Man, note that it doesn't go well for them for a while. They're persecuted and put to death. And this is in contrast to Daniel chapter 1 through 6. Remember Daniel 1 through 6? Everybody who followed God faithfully, right, they got delivered. Everybody who follows God faithfully in chapter 7 and 12, well, not so much. But we see that the saints are given a kingdom and rule. Basically what we see, as John describes in Revelation, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The enemies are judged and the saints are vindicated. I'll conclude with this. We've been looking at the book of Daniel and trying to address two questions. How does a person live faithfully for God in an ungodly culture? And secondly, is God worth living for? I would hope that you can see that as God is described in Daniel chapter 7, that he is totally and completely and wholly worth living for. He is the only one worth living for. If this does not answer that question, I don't know what does. So how do we live for this king in an an ungodly culture? Well, we do so faithfully. We do so regardless of circumstances. We do so regardless of what's going on around us. We do so regardless of what popular culture says. We do so regardless of what people may say, whether people are in favor of our serving God or whether they have um, 
animosity towards us because we serve God. We continue to serve the God who rules and reigns. And so, like chapter 2, chapter 7 depicts four kingdoms that are overcome by the kingdom of God. If you are a child of the king, you are part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom then was inaugurated with Jesus' incarnation and will be consummated when he comes again. Folks, We need to understand that God shows Daniel the kingdoms of the world that he will establish. God shows Daniel his kingdom that that transcends just what the Jewish people are going through. We need to recognize that the world we live in, this present evil age, is ruled by fallen men. The reality is that the saints may suffer and do suffer is a reality. But Jesus came with the gospel of reconciliation. And this gospel must go out into this world, out into this hostile environment. And the saints must endure in the midst of this hostility. I return back to the picture of heaven, which is calm. There is no panic. There is no turmoil. There is turmoil in the roiling seas, but there is no turmoil in heaven. It is calm and it is without tumult, and there is no panic. Our gaze is to be tuned to the realities beyond this realm where the eternal God has all authority. See, our hope in life is not simply focused on the here and now, but we are citizens of another kingdom. I am not saying that we are to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. God has called us to proclaim the gospel in this present evil age to everybody who we have an audience with to do so faithfully, to continue about going about uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus, feeding the poor, taking care of the sick, um, uh, bringing in the outcast. That's what we need to continue to do. But we do so with our understanding that this earth and earth kings are not our only hope. We have a hope of a God who's in heaven, who rules and reigns. And so our gaze is to be tuned to those realities. Folks, the kingdom has come. It came when Jesus uh, entered in onto this earth and our kingdom is coming. Jesus will come again. Our God reigns. Let's stand and let's pray. Our God, you are so great and awesome and beyond description and compare. I consider the words of the text and consider the words that I have spoken and comment on this text. And oh, how human words fall short of your glorious beauty. How can we ever describe such beauty and such splendor and such perfection? How can we do a good job? And yet, Lord God, here we are. So wherever the words that I have spoken have fallen short of your perfection and glory, I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would make them um, come alive so that people would see your beauty and majesty and desire you above all things. And so have mercy upon us, Lord God, 
imprint these things on our heart. Let us know that the things of this earth, Lord, while we live here, we continue to occupy and we continue to serve and minister as Christ did. But we do so knowing that this world is not our home, but that our God reigns and rules from heaven. And truly, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us bow and worship him and do so with great praise and honor. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.